We are continuing to attempt to do recitations of the New Testament reading each week. I'll extend the invitation. I had so many takers last week that I was a bit overwhelmed, which is the height of cynicism, sarcasm at the moment. If anyone wants over the course of the summer to know a passage that they can start to memorize so that they can recite, we'd love to have you do it. There's no pressure. God will like you 33% better if you do this. Nope, not at all. But we think it's an important thing, a way of learning to, to gnaw on God's word like baby Kenna was gnawing on that bulletin. To memorize scripture, to learn it by heart. So today's reading, our recitation will be from Romans 3 as we continue our journey through the book of Romans. Romans three nineteen through 31. NIV 84 as always. <clears throat> now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silent and everyone held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. But rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, there has been revealed a righteousness from God apart from law that comes through Jesus Christ. It's been made no difference by the law and all the prophets and comes to everyone who believes. For there is no difference... All have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace that came through the redemption purchased by Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of keeping the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by the same faith. Do we then nullify the law? No way! Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. A large... Lord, we spend... A large portion of our waking hours are clear on things we should be confused about and confused on things we should be clear on. We're filled with judgments for others and indictments towards ourselves. We live in fear of the disapproving frown of the crowd, which may indicate that we're really deeply afraid of your frown. The Apostle Paul has good news for us, and we pray somehow, some way, even through these words you give to me, that you would convince hearers to my left and right and before me that they've been prized, that they've been accepted, 
and all by the work of another. Let that make us the most boastful people on the planet, only not about anything we've done, but always and only about what you've done. So come do astounding things. We invite you now. Amen. You may have binge-watched at some point The Office, and you know, therefore, that Stanley Hudson, who lives for the 5 o'clock hour and is committed to not exerting himself beyond what is required, realizes at one point his duty. He gets to be on jury duty. And Stanley says, I have been trying to get on jury duty every year since I turned 18 years old. To sit in an air-conditioned room all day long with your lunch paid for? Judging people? What could be better than that? Stanley is every man who is honest and every woman who will contend with forthrightness about herself. There is a great satisfying relief that comes from getting to watch others, to judge them in some way, because it helps us feel so much better about ourselves. And in fact, even in our moment where you could go up to about anybody and almost no one would agree that there's anything that's actually right or actually wrong, except saying something's actually right or actually wrong. But you could tell anybody, you could destroy them by simply saying, you're not a good person. You're not good. You're not a good mother. I mean, you're nice and everything, but you're a terrible mother. You're not good at your job. You're a thoughtless father. You're selfish. You're terrible to your parents. Most of us would either shrivel into a little fetal ball or else come out screaming like a hungry lion. If we were accused of being not good, we would want to delineate somehow or another, make a case for ourselves, because we live in fear of being judged. What is one of the things you say frequently online? Don't judge me. Yes, I fed my kids macaroni and cheese. Don't judge me. We went to Walmart. Don't judge me. Why do you live in fear of judgment? Why is it so awful to have the eyes of another find something deficit in you, deficient in you, not up to snuff in you? Well, I'd argue from the scriptures and from good experience that perhaps, just perhaps, something about being made in the image of God means that you have some cosmic and existanswerable, deep experiential knowledge that your life is answerable, that it is being watched, that it is being lived before God, even if you don't think of him. That's part of why you fear judgment, because you want to be approved. You want to be accepted. And that's why this passage is so important today. Because the Apostle Paul 
deals with the idea of judgment and how you may escape it. How you may live with the threat of it over your life every single day. How that threat can be completely averted. And why this doctrine that he lays out is what John Calvin would say is the hinge upon which true religion turns. Most theologians of the Protestant tradition anyway would say this is the most important doctrine in our whole book of doctrines. Everything about the way we understand God's dealing with people rests on the pivot point of this doctrine of justification by faith. It's the kale of doctrine. A superfood that if you get this, it's going to overcome a whole lot of theological deficits in you. And so the apostle starts, and he's and what things? What won't happen for anyone, and what can happen for everyone. What won't happen for anyone, what can happen for everyone. He says, trying to convince Jews here in Rome, in this church he's never met, trying to lay out the gospel that he preaches, the announcement, not the suggestion, the news, not the advice that he gives. And he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and every person in the world held accountable to God. He's just laid out a case that the Gentiles are flipping wicked. And as the Jews are watching the report of it on Fox News and nodding and getting angrier and throwing stuff at the TV, he's like, he says, and you're no better. The scriptures say it over and over and over again. No one is righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. They've together become worthless. They're like disobedient dogs. They're not useful for anything. Paul's trying to say, look, religious people and the people who don't think of God at all, you're all in the same when you get it. And what's supposed to happen when you get a sense of God's law, the requirements that he's given the Jews and the Mosaic economy, when God, when God through Moses gave the Ten Commandments and he gave all these laws about diets and cleanliness, the rules about circumcision, but also the laws that he puts on human hearts of just conscience. He talks about that in chapter 2. That all of these things, what they're supposed to have the effect of doing is making you feel like you've been caught red-handed. That you're in a courtroom and all the evidence of your life has been presented against you and you get up to take the stand and you say, "But," and they've got video of you. They've got video of you doing it. Not being what you're supposed to be. It's on tape. Or the interwebs or something. And you can't say anything. There is no defense. Every mouth silenced. And everybody answerable to God's court of justice. What won't happen for anyone, says the apostle, when they stand in front of the tribunal of God at the end of time, what was going to happen, that God was going to judge the living and the dead. 
is that nobody was going to be able to make a fitting defense of themselves. So he says, therefore, here's what's not going to happen for anyone. No one is going to be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. But rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What will not happen for anyone is that no one you know and no one you don't know, no one who's lived and no one who has yet yet to live, is going to be able to stand before God and give a compelling case for why he ought to accept them based on the things that they have done. It will all be inadequate. It will all be too little. None of it will be enough. That's what Paul's hoping to say. Through God's law, you actually become conscious of sin. Have you seen that Seinfeld where Elaine... I think, buys a certain dress. And in this dress, she concludes, and the salesperson at the dress shop helps her conclude in the mirror upon which she gazes at herself that she looks stunning in this dress. This dress fits her like none other. And she's so excited. Look at how I look in this dress. It's magnificent. And then she goes, she looks with another mirror. And the dress is like eight sizes bigger. She looks way more boxy all of a sudden. She all of a sudden looks distorted. She doesn't look near as good. She's got to get back to that mirror. Something about the lighting, something about the way the mirror made her look. In that mirror, in that light, she looked perfect. But in the, uh, in the too true daylight of her own house, in that mirror, she just looked like her old self. A new dress didn't help nothing. So she concluded. The apostle would say, this is what the requirements of God's law are meant to do for people. They're meant to be a mirror that you look at and go, oh gosh, get that mirror away from me. A mirror that you don't look at and say, oh my goodness, did, is it possible that I get better looking overnight? I mean, how does this keep happening? How do I get more spelt by the day? How does my hair become more executively styled? How does my teeth become more glistening each day? What is happening? Holy cow, what a gift to the world I am. Paul says that when you're looking at God's law rightly, what's going to happen is you're going to say, get that thing away from me, I'm hideous. Twitterable aversion. When need only... Use the Twitterable version of God's law. Love God with all you got. And be as preoccupied with your neighbor as you are with yourself. To say there's nobody who takes those things seriously is ever going to be able to make a convincing case that they've done it. Even the people you go up to and say, and I've had lots of people, well not lots of people, some people say, I'm a good person. It's usually after doing something bad. I'm a good person. Don't judge me. I'm a good person. They're so badly wanting to be able to make a case for themselves. I do it too. I defend myself all the time when I feel misunderstood because I want to make a case for myself. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I want to make sure that I'm justified in the eyes of others. And Paul says that's a fool's errand. Because no one's going to be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. You need another tact. Because the law, as I said last week, is like a harsh fluorescent light that shows up every blemish on your skin. 
It shows you not how good you are, but how much you failed to be good. If Paul knew about it, he would have told you about the Fitbit fallacy. That's what he's getting at here. Oh, it's been resurrected. Fitbit fallacy. You notice I'm re-wearing my Fitbit. It, it went dormant for a while. It's been resurrected, so I've been wearing it again. I don't know the song. But I've been wearing my Fitbit again, and there's this interesting thing. You start to wonder sometimes if, if you take steps, like if you walk out to your car and you don't have your Fitbit on, does it count? Or have you ever just like not gone and done something because you didn't have your Fitbit on and you weren't going to get credit for the steps? Well, I know I need to get the stuff out of the car, but I'll just make do it. I'm a Fitbit on. I'm not going to get credit for the steps. There's a saying you may have heard. People don't do what you expect. They do what you inspect. There's all kinds of talk these days about the quantified self. Sammy Rhodes has said, if you go to a farmer's market and do not take a picture of it on Instagram, did it actually happen? What can't be measured cannot be managed. There are all these principles that we use for our lives to make our lives go. And they do make our lives go. That's how you run your businesses. That's how you run your households. The same principle we bring with us because it's indigenous to our being. This principle that says, I've got to be able to make a boast about myself somehow or another. I've got to have something I can point to that says, look at what I did. Look at what I did. I walked 17,000 steps. Isn't that something, God? Look how fit I am. I was once nice to a kid. One time I had an extra dollar and I gave it to a poor guy. I got really mad at some people who were being racist. And I did things on Facebook. There's something about us that wants, by putting other people down and making a case for ourselves, to say, look, I've measured up. And Paul says, here's what will happen for no one. No one will get enough steps, enough moral steps before God. No one will have enough measurables that they can manage God. No one will survive his inspection based on what they've done. The whole point of God's law, in one respect, is to show you what a complete and utter failure you are. Merry Christmas. But, that's what won't happen for anyone, but what can happen for everyone is the next good part. But now, there's been a shift. Time itself has changed. Now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And when they say the law and the prophets in the Bible, that means the law means the law of Moses, the first five books, or the Pentateuch, the Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then the prophets means everything else. So the whole Old Testament testify to this, that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. Here's what can happen. 
to people who will never be able to measure up, to people who will never be good enough, to people who will never calculate enough moral steps for God, there is a way to be declared righteous in God's sight, to know that you'll face God's judgment with a smile, a mutual smile. And it comes, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. There's no difference between religious or irreligious, Gentile, Jew. Everybody is in equal hot water. And none of them have lived up to their calling to be the image of God. So if they're going to be declared righteous, it's going to have to be a gift. Plain and simple. It's going to have to be a gift, something that God hands over to them. And so he says that's what he's done. For anybody who will accept it, for everyone who will believe it, for all the people, no matter if you think you're really good or you think that you're really awful, it's there to accept the work of another for you. Some of you may have seen my essay in the Chattanooga last week, uh, driving down, this is a while back I did this, driving without my wallet, praying, Lord, I mean, <laughs> you're going to have to give me a parking space here because I, I don't have a, there's no grace-based parking on Broad Street. I was meeting some people. I had no way to pay. I, and in those days, I didn't have the Park Mobile app. I wasn't cool enough. I graduated into a level of coolness where I can now pay electronically overpriced uh, parking fees. But I never feel it, so it doesn't really count. But as I was praying... God, please provide me a spot. I was in a rush. All of a sudden, there was a spot paid for me. 54 minutes left on this meter. Paid for by another. A payment had been made. It was theological justice. A payment had been made, but it wasn't mine. I was getting the spot, but I didn't pay for it. Somebody else paid for it. And I just had to accept it. I just had to pull in there. It's been paid for. I get to live in the freedom of a free parking space that somebody else had to pay for. And that's what God has done here. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There was a cost, a redemption. It was a payment. His life for ours. God presented him as a sacrifice, we're told, of atonement. Through faith in his blood, and it harkens back to this idea that God had been drilling into the hearts of the people of God, that you can't come into God's presence dirty, and you can't come empty-handed, and when you come with sin, there has to be death. There has to be blood to sprinkle clean. And so on this day of atonement, there was a slaughtering of a live animal so that sinners themselves wouldn't be slaughtered. There was the placing on the head of a goat as Michael Scott would say, an escape goat, but really just a scapegoat, who would be sent out into the wilderness carrying off kingdom. And the failures and the rebellions of the people, God was training them to believe that if they wanted to be right with him, the price for sin was death. And he paid it. So what can happen for everyone is that they can stand 
right now today and say, one day I'm going to be judged by God. And guess what? Even though I yell at my kids and I'm an idolater and sometimes I help the poor and sometimes I just get mad at them. And sometimes I just want to keep my money and sometimes I give it away. And sometimes I want to pray and sometimes I want God to leave me alone. I do not comfort myself by rehearsing what I've done or by reciting what I've not done. I comfort myself by looking to Christ who is the sacrifice of atonement to bring me to God, to bring you to God. It's available and can happen for everyone, for all who believe. So a test case, if you're believing this, how it should work. Because he's trying to get, especially these Jewish folks here, to realize that they're actually depending on their Jewishness. They're depending on their intention of keeping the law. They're depending on their keeping of his, depending on their election with God and on their keeping of his law to be declared righteous in his sight. And so they need to be told, as John Gerstner once gruffly said, he was a gruff and severe theologian, repent of your damnable good deeds. What? That's not on Twitter. Repent of your damnable good deeds, he would say. Why would he say that? Well, because there's this subtle thing that happens for people like y'all, like me. We're trying kind of hard to be good. Most of you, I know, there's like, there's like 10 of you who aren't. But most of you are kind of trying hard to be good. You want to please God. You want to do good things and things that God wants you to do. But you know what can happen? When you start realizing how much you failed, you might realize that you're putting a lot of weight on these things that you managed to do started for me early. I can remember being a teenage boy with my friends and them saying, they were joking, like insider Christian speak. They were woke to devotions. They are like, hey, man, you have your devotion? It's like, what's devotions? They laughed at me. But then they told, what's a quiet time? <laughs> they laughed at me. But then they told me, they let me in on the secret knowledge that I needed If I was going to be a Christian, I had to have a quiet time. Okay, good, I got it. Read my Bible, pray. So I did that. So on the days that I did it, I knew I was not going to be able to fail a calculus test, and I'd probably hit 30 that night in the basketball game. But sometimes I would not do it because uh, dizziness or I just didn't want to. Okay, I just didn't want to. And on those days, watch out because I might get a flat tire or the Latin teacher would call on me and I hadn't done my translation work and I would look like an idiot and I would get expelled from school and everyone would hate me. Because I hadn't done my devotions. Or if you grew up in a community where they said, you got to evangelize. I know Presbyterian people would never say that, but you got to evangelize. You got to share the faith with somebody. You got to share the gospel with people. And so you evaluate your whole day. Did I evangelize or not today? Did I tell enough people about Christ? If I did, he loves me. If I didn't, oh, he loves me not. You're like a forlorn lover with the petals of a flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. You've got an addiction. You're trying to quit. Do it that day. 
If you don't do it that day, I'm good. God and I are good. You do it that day, God doesn't like me anymore. You're in and out of God's favor based on if you did it or you didn't do it, or if you succeeded or you didn't succeed. All of these things are subtle ways of leaning hard on what you're able to accomplish before God. It pressurizes everything, and it is a wobbly fence to lean on. As Paul says, if you want to be declared righteous before God, and you want to have the certainty of facing his judgment, then you put your whole weight on Jesus Christ. When I'm talking to our kids in the communicants class, when I'm interviewing them, most of them are sitting on a couch at their house. I say, what are you sitting on? Couch. You, you think it's going to fall in? See, I say this as a guy who's, uh, you may not have noticed, rather large in ways that I didn't wish. I've destroyed one of those chairs, and y'all laughed at me. No, one of those chairs. Sat on it. It shot out 27 feet behind me and looked like it had been in a drunken brawl on the Dukes of Hazard. I've been in chairs that have broken. I know what it's like to sit on something. It's going to hold. Most of you don't know what that's like. But Paul says you got something to sit on here. It's going to hold. It's the sacrifice of God. He has taken action. You rest in it. In fact, it'll change your whole approach to God. It'll change your whole approach to the law because you won't have to point at things and you won't be so mad at other people who aren't being good enough because you're working so hard to be good. Isn't it so angering to you, some of you? When you're trying hard to be good and nobody else is and they seem happy, why do they get to seem happy? I'm supposed to be happy. I'm trying so hard to be good. Well, because you're trying to boast and what you've done. And you're forgetting to take a seat on the mercy seat of Christ where he has atoned for all of your failings. And he has offered to you his righteousness in your place. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's a strict standard and no one can meet it. What won't happen for anyone is that no one will be good enough. What can happen for everyone who trusts Christ? Who throws their whole weight on him. Who at the end of the day, when you know you failed, you don't say, well, maybe I've been a good enough Christian. Maybe I've given enough. Maybe I helped that guy on the corner. Jesus Christ, somebody at work. You don't have to delineate. You say, I throw my entire weight on Jesus Christ. Who has fully paid for all my sins and clothed me in his righteousness. I hide myself in him. It'll help you deal with race. It'll help you deal with money. It'll help you deal with power because you won't be looking down on people all the time because you'll know that everybody you meet is just like you, a scalawag who needs grace from God. There's a scene in a movie that some of you may know called To End All Wars. And in it, these American soldiers who are in a prison camp these allied forces, rather I should say, who are in a Japanese prison camp and they're being ruthlessly treated. They're being used to build a railway line. And one day after their work, the shovels are put back in the supply house. But one shovel after the count is missing. 
The missing shovel becomes apparent, and the commanding officer who's got them in formation says, there's a shovel missing. If whoever's responsible for this missing shovel does not step forward, everyone will be punished. And these emaciated men who are weak from the sun and from fear and fatigue, their skin is brown from the sun and from dirt and filth. They're looking at each other, confused. They don't know what's happening. And the man's getting angrier and angrier and screaming at them. Who is responsible for this? Who is responsible for this? And Kiefer Sutherland, a soldier, a POW, walks forward. And he takes off his hat. And offers himself as the one who's taken the shovel. And so before the viewing of all of them, the commanding officer picks up a shovel himself and begins to mercilessly beat Kiefer Sutherland with the nailing him in the back till he falls to the ground, till he writhes in pain, till he says, I can't feel my legs. When suddenly, one of the other officers says, actually, all the shovels are accounted for. There are no missing shovels. Sutherland stepped forward to pay for a crime that had not even been committed. And he certainly didn't commit it. But he took it. The paralysis and the beating and the displeasure of the guard of what they had done, others could be let off the hook scot-free. Irrespective of what they had done. And this is what Paul wants to be the basis of connectedness between differing people in the church between rich and poor and black and white, between tall and short, between really sterling righteousness and pretty, you know, normal. He wants you to know that we all look to one who has stepped forward to say, I'll take the beating they all deserve. I'll take the guilty verdict that they all deserve, even though it's a crime that I know I did not commit but I'll receive its punishment so they can be let scot-free. Paul says, when you understand that, what can you boast about? Certainly not anything you've done, but you might just become an inveterate boaster and the one who stepped forward for sinners like us. I hope so. Amen.